Our text this Lord's Day is in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, is where we're going to begin, but we're going to be spending most of the time this Lord's Day in Luke's Gospel, and next Lord's Day as well, as a matter of fact, because this is uh, basically a two-part sermon. But Mark 15.32 is where we'll begin, which says, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And if you would like to turn over to Luke chapter 23, today we'll be considering one verse there. Luke 23, verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A promise is only as good as the power and trustworthiness of the one making it. For if one does not have the power to guarantee the promise that is made, a thousand contingencies might intervene and prevent the realization of that promise. Or if one is not trustworthy, but given to lying or procrastinating or rashness, he may make a hundred promises and not fulfill even one of them. Such are the promises and the problems with promises that men make. But, dear ones, such are not the problems with the promises that Christ makes. For Christ, dear ones, is not limited in his power. Jesus said to his disciples before ascending into heaven, all power, not simply some power, not a lot of power, but all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Whereas a well-intentioned man may make a promise and be unable to keep it due to his own finite limitations, the Lord Jesus, dear ones, will move heaven and earth to keep his promises that he's made to his people. He will not neglect to fulfill even one of his promises. Nor is Christ a liar, dear ones. Another reason why he will fulfill all of his promises, he's not a liar. He cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. It is contrary to his very holy nature to lie. Another reason why Christ will fulfill all of his promises is that he is never too busy. With all that he does, he is never too busy hearing all the prayers of God's people all at the same time, answering the prayers of God's people, ruling and overruling in the affairs of men, 
everywhere, controlling this universe and holding it by the word of his power. He is never too busy yet to forget or to procrastinate in saying, I don't have time to fulfill this promise that I have made. For he is omniscient. He knows all things and has no problem in remembering all his promises. And finally, Christ, dear ones, is not given to making rash promises and later wishing that he had not allowed that promise to, to fall from his lips. For he has, dear ones, and is absolutely... He is absolutely wise in uttering only that which he intends and knows that he will do. Thus, there is not even the slightest infinitesimal chance that a single promise that Christ has made will not be realized. It is simply impossible that such would be the case. And here in dear ones is our confidence and trust in the midst of the storms of life. Our Savior will not lose one of his own. He's made that promise. He will not lose one of his own. He will not allow even one of you to perish in that storm. Though you embark from one shore and he promises that you will reach that heavenly shore and though the boat in which you are in sailing across that sea may be hit with waves that seem to engulf you, winds of persecution that would seem to blow you right out of the boat. And though you may seem to be going under, drowning in that sea, the Lord will come to your rescue. He will calm the sea. He will hush the winds. And He will reach down and pull you out. Because he will not lose. He has promised that he will not lose even one who has trusted in him by faith alone. Such is Christ's power and trustworthiness to keep all of his promises. In the sermon this Lord's Day, you shall hear blessed promises made by Christ to undeserving sinners. And as I alluded to earlier, this is a two-part sermon. Today we're going to be focusing upon the first promise, the promise of forgiveness, as it's found in Luke 23, verse 34. Next Lord's Day, we're going to be prom- uh, uh, focusing our attention upon the promise of life in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, as the Lord Jesus promised life to one of the robbers, murderers, that were hanging there upon the cross next to him. So let us consider today together the promise of forgiveness. Let me read for you one more time what what Jesus said in Luke 23, verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Last Lord's Day, we saw how low Christ humbled himself in order to suffer the shame of the cross for unworthy sinners chosen from eternity. He was stripped naked for all to see. He was numbered with the worst of criminals. 
He was even accounted the chief of criminals, being placed in the middle between these two criminals. He was mocked and ridiculed and made a laughingstock of all who passed by, by the Sanhedrin and even by the criminals themselves. He, dear ones, was the exalted Son of God and yet humbled himself to suffer and to endure such shame. And he suffered all alone. He suffered, dear ones, all alone, for only he could suffer for his people. No one else could suffer that shame. No one else could bear the infinite punishment and wrath of a holy God but the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered that for his people. In Mark 15.25, we are told that Christ was lifted up on that cursed and shameful cross at about the third hour or 9 a.m. When we come to Mark 15, verse 33, we are told that the sixth hour or noon has now come. Thus, that which Christ suffered upon the cross up to this particular point occurred within the first three hours of his crucifixion from 9 a.m. until noon on that Friday after the Passover. During that three-hour period, Christ made two utterances, possibly three from the cross, two for sure. The one that's somewhat questionable or debatable whether it falls into this particular time period or whether it falls into the last three hours is is the utterance of Christ from the cross where he uh, said to his mother that John was to take care of him or take care of her. That's in John 19.26. We will, in a subsequent sermon, be considering that statement, but we will not be covering it today. Today we're only considering those words of the Lord that clearly were spoken before noon as he suffered upon the cross. Interestingly, neither of these two utterances of Christ are found in any other gospel. They're only found in Luke's gospel. And the first utterance which we shall consider today is that utterance of the Lord. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, perhaps someone may say at this point, But that's not really a promise of forgiveness, but rather a prayer for forgiveness. And it is true that this is a prayer to his father for forgiveness for some. But I would submit to you that it is more than a mere prayer for forgiveness and that it is also a promise of forgiveness. For Christ always prays according to the promises of God and in agreement with the will of God. Jesus said in John 8.29, I always do that which is pleasing to my Father. And in John 11.42, the Lord Jesus said that the Father always hears 
and answers his prayers. Not most of them, not 99% of them, but he hears and answers all of Christ's prayers. <clears throat> Therefore, this prayer for forgiveness is implicitly a promise that those for whom it was prayed will indeed be forgiven. Before proceeding to look at who this prayer was offered on behalf of, let us uh, briefly talk about forgiveness itself, the nature of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness, dear ones, is the removal of the guilt of sin so that all punishment and condemnation is likewise removed from the sinner. Now, God uses different phrases to convey this glorious truth in Scripture. For example, forgiveness is called a cleansing of the defilement of sin. For our sins have made us all infinitely filthy in the sight of God. <coughs> forgiveness is also called a canceling of the debt of justice which we all owed to God for the sins that we committed against Him. For every sin and thought, word, and deed committed against God and against our neighbor demands a just payment without exception. And that just payment for even one sin is everlasting condemnation in hell because it's committed against an everlasting and infinite God. <clears throat> and that just payment, dear ones, <clears throat> which we owe to God is God's infinite wrath and justice. Payment must be made, dear ones. Payment must be made either by the sinner or by the sinner's surety. That is, someone who stands in his place and says, I will pay the debt in full for that person so that that person will never have to stand under that legal requirement of payment again. And forgiveness, dear ones, is also called a pardoning of the guilt of our sins. For our sins, dear ones, have placed us all upon death row awaiting the everlasting judgment of God in hell. Dear ones, when God forgives our sins, the scripture says, He remembers them against us no more. He will never bring up those sins that have been forgiven again in order to condemn us for them. For the legal basis the legal basis for such a glorious forgiveness is that Jesus Christ agreed in the covenant of redemption made in eternity with God the Father, that he would suffer the infinite wrath of God in the place of unworthy sinners chosen in him before the foundations of the world. And God in his part agreed that when Christ fulfilled those conditions, Fulfilled that covenant, 
that he, God, would forever pardon those sinners for whom Christ died. The suffering of Christ was indeed sufficient to pay off the debt of justice in full which we owed to God. For Christ demonstrated that it was paid in full by his own resurrection on the third day. Had Christ remained in the grave, we would have no confidence that he had paid in full our sins. But because he was raised the third day, he was raised for our justification. He was raised to declare that we have been uh, forgiven in him, that we are forgiven in him, and that he has paid the debt in full. But then the question arises, if we have been legally in the courts of heaven forgiven by God all of our sins, past, present, and future, why are we still commanded to confess our sins to the Lord that we might be forgiven as we hear in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, I think that it's important that we understand that there are two aspects to our forgiveness by God. We are once and for all forgiven by God as our judge. And yet we are daily forgiven by God as our father. As our holy judge, God legally pardons all our sins, past, present, and future, at the time that we are justified by faith alone. We read, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. There was justification is not a continual process where when we sin after having been justified, we lose our justification and have to be justified over and over and over again by confessing our sins and being forgiven our sins. It is a completed act, once and for all, wherein we believe and take hold of Christ, and he, on his part, forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and imputes and credits to us his glorious obedience and righteousness. When the sinner sees himself helplessly lost and deserving of God's everlasting judgment due to his sin, and he looks away from his self-righteousness, when he looks away from his filthy rags, that's what God calls all of our righteousness, and he, in faith, looks to Christ as his own righteousness, God as judge forgives the guilt of all of his sin once and for all. God then legally transfers the believer from the status of a condemned criminal to the status of an adopted child. So that is now our status before God. We are his adopted children. We are justified. It is a state, a status from which one cannot be removed. This legal fact 
made and established in the courts of heaven, can never be revoked. For Christ bore, dear ones, bore the infinite punishment for sin which the believer deserved. Thus, legally before God is our judge, the guilt of all sin has been forever removed. Christ would have to suffer again and again and again if we, in any way, had to pay for our sins. If we, in any way, were condemned again for our sins, it would mean that Christ's death was not sufficient or that he needed to suffer more in order to forgive us or to declare us righteous. That is the judicial forgiveness of God, but there is also a fatherly and parental forgiveness of God which we daily need as well if we would enjoy the blessedness of communion with the Lord. We read, for example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is an ongoing process. You remember the Lord Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 13 when he was washing the feet of the disciples and it came to Peter and Peter resisted and said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord said, if I don't wash your feet... Peter, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter said, well, then, Lord, wash not only my feet, but my whole body. Bathe me, my whole body. And the Lord Jesus said to him, those who have been washed completely don't need to be washed completely again. They simply need to have their feet washed. As their feet pick up sins as they walk in this life. And so we do not need to be judicially forgiven, justified again. We need God's parental and fatherly forgiveness, though, daily, that we might enjoy that blessed communion and fellowship with the Lord our God on a daily basis. I'm sure we've all experienced this in our families, that there has been some offense committed, maybe between a husband and a wife, or between a father and a child. And things are just not right. Even though the status of being a child remains, or being a husband or a wife remains, something is wrong. That offense has blocked that communion and fellowship, that freedom of access, that enjoyment with one another. And until that is removed by way of confessing the sin and receiving forgiveness, it continues to be a hindrance to that enjoyment and that communion and fellowship between those people. Well, this is certainly the case between ourselves and the Lord our God. And we suffer that same lack and hindrance of fellowship if we do not confess our sins to the Lord and receive His fatherly forgiveness. Now, we come to the question or the point to which we're leading 
We need to answer this question concerning the words of Christ. For whom was Christ praying when he uttered these words from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, before we start talking about who Christ was praying for, let us be sure and clear that whomever it was for whom Christ was praying, they would be forgiven. Maybe not immediately at that precise moment, but they would experience, whoever they are, they would experience the forgiveness of God because Christ does not pray in vain. The prayers of Christ are always answered by God because he always prays according to the promises and the revealed will of God. So whomever this refers to, to whomever this refers, this we must be certain of. They would be forgiven. Was Christ praying for the forgiveness of those Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross? Or was Christ praying for the forgiveness of all the Roman soldiers that were involved in his scourging and beating that crown of thorns down into a skull and placing the robe upon his back and mocking him? Or was he praying for the forgiveness of the civil and religious leaders who tried him unjustly? Or was he praying for others? Well, let us be clear and seek to be clear about who Christ was praying for here. This prayer of Christ was not an expression, as I said or alluded to earlier, it's not an expression of how God will forgive men if they would but come to him. Certainly that is the way that God does forgive is that men must come to him. They must confess their sins, their need of him. They must turn from their sins and look to Christ for his forgiveness. That is the manner and the way in which God does forgive sin. But was that what Christ was saying? If that's the case, then it would basically apply to, to every single person whoever has come to Jesus Christ. He was praying for everyone. And maybe in some sense we might make in kind of a broad generalization that, that that is the case. But I think that we need to look more closely at our context in the rest of Scripture to try to determine those for whom Christ was praying. It seems to me the first likelihood or possibility those for whom Christ was praying was the Roman soldiers who crucified him. For we find this testimony in Luke 23, verse 47, concerning the centurion that was there at the time of Christ's crucifixion. It says, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. <coughs> we also find in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, 
these words, now when the centurion, and then notice this, and they that were with him, no doubt meaning the, the other soldiers, watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. <clears throat> and I would submit that this is at least a plausible explanation for those that Christ had in mind and those that he was praying for. But I would also suggest to you that many professed Christ during his earthly ministry and never truly believed, nor were truly forgiven of their sin. In John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, there the Lord Jesus speaks of many who came to him read those words for you. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Just as these, these Roman soldiers saw the earthquake, they were impressed by the way in which Christ suffered. But it says in verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them that believed because he knew all men. Those who said that they believed in Christ, Christ did not commit himself to them. There was a profession of faith and belief, but there was not the actual possession of faith, apparently, in this case. Likewise, in John chapter 6, verse 66, <clears throat> we find these words, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Here were men who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, who professed him to be the Son of God, who said they believed in him, and they turned their backs upon the Lord and walked no more with him. And that's why the Lord puts the question to the disciples, are you also going to turn away and not follow me to his twelve disciples? At that point, he's assured by them, that they believe that he is, their faith is in him alone as the true Son of God. <clears throat> and so at least I would say there is the plausibility of Christ praying for the soldiers here. I wouldn't want to eliminate that possibility. But I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. And I would say that we have no testimony at all that the cohort of soldiers that beat Christ and mocked him were actually forgiven of their sins. Nor do we have any testimony that all of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Pilate or Herod, that unjustly tried him were forgiven of their sins. But I would like to propose another possibility that seems to exist as for whom Christ prayed. In the verses just preceding the crucifixion of Christ as he was led to Golgotha, the Lord reminded those following him that God's judgment was to soon fall upon Jerusalem and Israel for their hatred and rejection of Christ as their Messiah. You read this in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 31. You'll remember at the trial of Jesus Christ, the rulers and the multitude of Jews that were gathered there cried out to Pilate, His blood 
be on us and on our children. We take full responsibility for the sin of crucifying the Son of God. The words in Luke chapter 23 that I have just alluded to where he talks about the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem, the judgment that God would bring upon Israel for their sin in rejecting him. The next words of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though there are a few verses that intervene, the next words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, the next, at least that we have recorded for us, are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Might the Lord not have been praying for the forgiveness of Israel as a nation? Might this not be a prayer for the future restoration of Israel as a nation? I would propose this to be those who most likely were in view in Christ's prayer here. And these are the reasons I would suggest lend credibility to this proposal. Let me just quickly lay out for you why I think this is very credible. First of all, Israel was directly implicated in the crucifixion of Christ as Christ's prayer indicates. Forgive them. Forgive them for what? Forgive them for the sin that they are now committing against me. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, let us just hear the summary of some of the sermons that follow Christ's ascension into heaven. In Acts 2.23, notice what Peter says. Speaking of Christ, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken... Who are the ye? Well, back in verse 22, ye men of Israel. He says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. In chapter 3, Verses 12 through 15. Again, listen to this sermon or message by Peter. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel. Notice who he's speaking to. Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, this miracle of healing this, this man that was lame? Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. In Acts 4.27, a prayer that is offered by the apostles has this 
portion in the prayer. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, notice here, and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And then this, I think, is very clear in Acts 5.30. Begin with verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. The Jewish nation, through its representatives, and taking the curse of that blood upon them as well as their children, crucified and put Christ to death. And for that, again, they were most miserably judged in 70 AD. Secondly, let me also note that according to what Christ says here, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He claims that they are ignorant of all that they are doing here. Well, was this true of Israel? In Acts 3.17, in the same sermon which Peter preached after the healing of this lame man, we find these words. And now, brethren, I wot or know that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. You're ignorant of what you did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You're ignorant of this. In fact, Paul, being a, uh, one of the arch persecutors of the church, likewise says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Being a Pharisee, being a persecutor of the church, he did so ignorantly. Interestingly enough, Stephen likewise prayed a a similar prayer that the sin of Israel in murdering him not be laid to the charge of Israel. And if not laid to Israel's charge, one must ask, since it was a sin, to whose charge? To whose charge? I would suggest Christ's charge. Because Christ would forgive them as a nation. And to demonstrate, and just very, very briefly, there are many prophecies of Israel's future forgiveness and restoration as a nation. Chiefly, in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, Where it says, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins, when I shall forgive them, when I shall cleanse them of their sins as a nation. And having put to death the sinless Son of God and their Messiah. Likewise, one can go back to Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And where the new covenant is specifically prophesied to Israel as a nation. This covenant, it says in verse 31, is made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 34, it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Notice this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Likewise, in Jeremiah 33, verses 7 through 9. Likewise, in Hebrews 8.12. Likewise, in Hebrews 10.16, the new covenant comes up and is mentioned. And the forgiveness of sins that is promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah when the Lord restores them unto himself. And I want to end this this particular point by looking at Matthew 23 the last three verses there Matthew 23 verses 37 through 39 where judgment is promised but then restoration and restoration only comes through the forgiveness of sin O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the decimation of Israel by Rome in 70 A.D. Verse 39. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth. And I would judge that to mean that Israel would not see him as they then see him in body, henceforth again, which is at his second coming, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They would first as a nation, before the second coming of Christ, they will before that time confess that Jesus is Lord. And that would, again, tying it in with the rest of the passages we have just considered, have in view their restoration, the forgiveness of them as a nation. We see here, I would suggest to you, dear ones, a foretaste of the future forgiveness of Israel in this prayer, that this will occur. And we actually see that foretaste in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 of Israel, of those Israelites who heard came to Christ. And then shortly thereafter, in Acts 4, 5,000 more come into the kingdom of Christ. And here is a foretaste of that 
future restoration, the forgiveness which God would grant to his people Israel. Beloved, Israel's future forgiveness and restoration is held forth here, not only for their encouragement, not only for their comfort, but I would submit to you that it is held forth for our comfort as Gentiles as well, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. For dear ones, that covenant, that new covenant that was made with Israel and that is promised to Israel, the root of that covenant, the covenant of grace, are the promises that are made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where God promises that he will be a God to them and to their children. He promises that they will be his people and he will be their God. And here we find, dear ones, in Romans chapter 11, that it is that same covenant of grace pictured as an olive tree into which we, Gentile believers, are grafted. And we have been grafted into their new covenant. The promises made to them. They have not been grafted into our olive tree. We have been grafted into their olive tree. And we share in all of those blessings which the Lord promised. All of those spiritual blessings that were promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We partake of the richness of that grace. And when Israel is forgiven and restored, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, we find the most amazing thing. That it will be such an amazing thing that happens in the world's history to see Israel as a nation come to Jesus Christ and profess Christ as their Messiah. That it will have the effect of bringing all of the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will fall upon the, the shoulders of our elder brethren, Israel, weeping. And they upon our shoulders, weeping. And they will beat their chest, mourning over how they have put to death as a nation their Messiah. But they will be forgiven their sin. They will be forgiven and restored. And the nations will come into the most high place of the Lord according to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. All the nations will flood into the kingdom of Christ. And so we can take comfort, dear ones, we who have been engrafted into that olive tree, even now, what we do is not in vain. What we do by way of promoting this reformation, small as it may seem, is promoting 
and being used by God to bring his people Israel back into a covenant relationship with him to see them restored. And so let us not grow weary. Let us rather look at the amazing grace of God, a nation that was responsible for putting Christ to death, hating him, despising him, scorning and rejecting and denying him. The Lord in his mercy and grace embraces and draws back an unfaithful bride and restores unto them that faithful covenant relationship. The promise of God's forgiveness, dear ones, is preached to all of you today. The promise of God's forgiveness is made in baptism, the sacrament which will be administered this day to one of our covenant children. That promise is made unto us and to our children. And that forgiveness is realized. That promise is realized when we are brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone said, that nation that crucified Christ will yet receive the gracious pardon of Christ. Is there any sin other than that one sin, the unpardonable sin? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in which one who has been so enlightened with the truth of Jesus Christ turns his back upon Christ and his claims and becomes a hater and despiser and persecutor of Christ. Apart from that sin, is there any sin so great that God will not forgive? If he forgave Israel, I would suggest to you that is a paradigm and the extent to which God will go to forgive your sins and mine. And having received such a free and full pardon from God for our sins, how can we refuse to forgive others their sins when they confess their sins to us and desire to turn from their sins and to seek our forgiveness? How can we refuse to forgive them no matter what they have done to us? How we must always stand ready to forgive. We cannot forgive until people confess their sins. We cannot forgive until they give indication that they are repenting of their sins. But we can always stand ready to forgive. Because, dear ones, once we forgive, and this is very important because we don't simply grant forgiveness to people who sin and offend us just indiscriminately. God does not forgive in that way. God draws people first to himself to acknowledge their sin and their need of forgiveness. And then, as they look to Christ, he forgives. So likewise, we cannot just promiscuously, indiscriminately forgive I mean, this is the theology of those who go about as heinous as the Holocaust was, going about and simply trying to get 
nations, as it were, to say, I forgive, or for them who were persecuted, I forgive you for what you have done. I forgive you for what you have done. I forgive you for what you have done. This is just a promiscuous type of forgiveness that is not based upon acknowledging sin. And so, dear ones, when we do forgive, we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Freely, the Lord says, freely you have received, freely give. Let us not, in effect, harbor even a greater sin by refusing to forgive those who come to us after we have been forgiven so much. Let us not become like that parable of the servant whom his master forgave so much, but when his fellow servant owed him so much less, he was unwilling to forgive, but demanded every cent and penny, threw him into prison because he was unable to pay. May God have mercy upon us and may the grace of God so alter and change our way of thinking with regard to forgiveness that we would be willing to forgive as Christ has forgiven us and as Christ will forgive the nation of Israel. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.